Um, listen, we're coming back to Romans, and um, we were in Romans a long time, and then we took a while, a break away, and we're coming back, and um, I'm, I'm not going to spend a ton of time uh, setting the table for this. I just want to get right to it. We're in a amazing, beautiful, galactic, epic, global, bigger than global, universe-sized passage uh, in Romans. It's Romans. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans 5. We should, Ed, have slides. You, <laughs> you've got them back there. I can't see anymore. The, the, the projection camera used to show behind you guys, and now it's not. But, um, but you, we've got slides back there for you. Um, but I want to jump right into it and any like catching up that we'll do in Romans, I'll just try to do as we look at the verses because the verses themselves have some catch up power in them, some sum up power, okay? So I'm going to read this passage. I'm going to beg God to help, all right? And you guys can beg God with me. Therefore, this is Romans 5, 1 and 2, since we have been justified by faith, you know what? Let's say this together. This is so amazing. Let's say this together. Let's try to, try to do it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Lord, please, in Jesus' name, my preparation is incomplete and weak and um, tainted at least by my sinfulness. And so please, Lord, work despite that to glorify your name. And please, God, give us ears to hear and see. Help me to communicate as clearly as I can. Despite my not serving you as well as I could this week, help me, God, to communicate as clearly as I can and not get in the way of you but by your grace, Lord, help people see you better. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit just work powerfully here. Lord, that's what we really need. We need your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts. To shine into our hearts the light of your truth about this passage. That we might receive it and be changed by it, be lifted up by it. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Could you guys hear the joy and the triumph and the hope and the power and the happiness in, in, in those words? I mean, Paul, Martin Luther says, I, I sent an email out to, to the church this week. Martin Luther says something along the lines of, Paul is a happy man as he says this. Another writer says, he, it feels like he's singing this passage. And it goes on. There's more singing in Romans 5. Romans 5 just sings, especially the first 11 verses. And then it gets into some of the hardest, headiest theology. I feel like I get hit by a Mack truck later on in Romans 5. But right now, it's just song of joy. And, and to understand what Paul is saying here, because it, it all works together. This is a train that connects. It's not this over here and this over here and this over here. This whole sentence, it's, it's, well, this whole couple of sentences it's really the whole of our redemption in, in two verses. And it all connects. One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. I want you to be able to see that. It's going somewhere. The beginning pushes into the end. So I want you to try to understand it. One way to help us do this, to see the end from the beginning of it, okay? So it says right here, 
Paul ends this verse with, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's where Paul says we're going. That's the end, the direction, the the destination, the hope of the glory of God. And to understand what Paul is saying here, I wanna start with this phrase at the end. And to understand this, we need to go back to the beginning of creation and think about why we have to get to this place again. Because we're not at this place right now. We're going there, but we're not there yet because we lost it. We lost this thing called the hope of the glory of God or the glory of God itself. And I want to talk about that, what the glory of God is and how we lost it. So point one, the glory of God we lost. That should be the next slide. The glory of God we lost. That's point one. So just real quick, an attempt to do a, books are written about this, many sermons are preached about this, but in a, in a few minutes, a, a primer on glory, glory. I, I think a good definition, glory is hard to define. It's like one of those words like beauty. It's an abstraction. It's all over the Bible. It's massively important, but it's, it's difficult to describe. But I think a good definition of glory is something's inherent value displayed in such a way that we can perceive it. Glory is the inherent value of what something is. Its value, its worth, magnified, displayed, expressed. And then we perceive it and it's glorified to us. Think about a delicious, on the grill, ribeye steak. Not summer when it's so hot, but not now. But in the spring, when it's like 70 degrees outside, 75 degrees, and it's just on that grill, and you smell it, you smell all the marinated, it's just beautiful, and it's cooked medium rare, where it should be cooked. It's a great steak. Whether it's eaten or not, the chef takes it off the grill, and he puts it on a plate. It's already a great steak. It already has value. It already has worth. But then you take the knife and you slice it through. You put your fork in. A little bit of juice spurts out. It's still a little bit warm, but it's so beautiful. And oh, it's pink. And you put it in your mouth and it just melts all over your taste buds. And you say, that is a glorious piece of steak. Right? That steak was had great value when it came off the grill. Your tongue didn't make it any better. But when its juices and its flavor fell all over your tongue, I'm sorry if you're a vegan, fill in the impossible steak or whatever it is for you. But when it got all over your tongue, it it screamed out glorious. Its inherent value and worth was expressed to you. Do you get it? Or... When we all saw the Bills beat the Steelers last week and it was third, third and nine in the first, second quarter and Josh Allen steps back, he's a great athlete. You didn't make him a great athlete. I didn't make him a great athlete. He's a, he's a generational talent and the Steelers defense comes to clobber him and he just boom. He's a six foot, almost six foot six, 250 pound white man. 
And these people are all grabbing onto him, and he's just boom, boom. And he runs, and he, he runs so ugly. But it's so fast. It's so fast. And they're all just falling around him. And you look at it and you say, that man is glorious. Right? He was always a good athlete, but his inherent value as a risk taker, as an athletic specimen, it was displayed to you. You saw what was real about him. That's kind of what glory is. It's kind of what glory is. Except nothing in a stake or Josh Allen compares to the glory of God. When the angels were in God's throne room in Isaiah 6, they, they're around the Lord and they're all crying out. They're singing this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They're talking about his intrinsic worth, his intrinsic value. That's who God is. He is other. He is unattainable in his perfections, in his the perfections of his love and his righteousness and his purity and his power. But then they say, the whole earth is full of his glory. That holiness, that uniqueness of God, the I am that I am, that makes everything, that brings everything into being with a word, it's displayed in everything God has made. So the heavens declare the glory of God. He already is Glorious and valuable and all-powerful, but we get to see it in the heavens, right? We might think of the story of Moses. When Moses was advocating for the people of Israel and God in his anger was considering, and although I think he was testing Moses, leaving the Israelites, Moses begs, God, don't leave us. You have to come with us. You have to stay with us. And God says, I will. And then, but Moses wants more. He wants more. Maybe he got so scared of the thought of losing God that he, he realized, I need, I, need to, I, need to, I need to cling closer to this God. So he says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. God says, I can't show you my glory in its fullness or you'll die. But Moses, I'll put you safe behind a rock where you'll be covered and I'll be obscured but I will pass by and let some of my glory be seen by you. And as God passes by, he proclaims his name. He displays the truth about who he is. He doesn't just show Moses cloud and light, though he does something like that because Moses is affected physically by a shining from God. But God proclaims his worth God always was worthy. He says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, the I am, the I am. Gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. But by no means leaving the guilty unpunished. He proclaims his character. And, and the glory of that name, it, it strikes out from God's inherent value and it's displayed in some sense. Moses' face is changed by it. Moses gets changed by it. And that's something else important about this passage is that when we behold something glorious, we get filled with something from it. 
when you eat that steak and it's delicious, you get filled with happiness, especially if you're hungry. If you're a Bills fan, you get filled with joy because you're excited about that great player. All that stuff is way, way, way billionth place behind what it means to really apprehend God's glory and his goodness and get filled by it. It's transformative. It changes us when we really, really encounter God when we really see him, it changes us. And many of you in this room have already experienced this in salvation. Somehow, God communicated his worth and his value to you as the holy one whom you have sinned against, as the one who holds the key of life and death and who judges the living and the dead. And you feared the Lord and you were convicted of your sin, but he also told you about the grace of his son that saves you and the blood that's poured out for you. And he made a covenant with your heart. You saw how kind he was, how, how able he was to save you completely. And you were transformed by seeing that with the eyes of your heart and you've never been the same. You saw something of God's glory. Brothers and sisters, that's why we were made. We were made to see God's glory and be transformed by it. We were made to worship him according to who he is, to see that the dignity of mankind is that unlike any other being created, we were given the great dignity of being able and having the capacity of and having the mission and the mantle of being able to actually apprehend the value of God. We were meant to be able to weigh in our hearts and sense in our hearts how valuable he is. And listen, he is value. It's, he is value itself. He is value. He is worth. Everything else is derivative of him. Everything else is sourced in him. And when you get to see him as the I am that is, the source of all things, you realize, the more you see that, the real, you realize like, this is the only real glory there is. And, and, and it's, it's what we were made for. It's why people worship. It's why we get transfixed by things. It's why we adore things. It's why we were moved by things. Because we were made to be transfixed and adore and be moved by the ultimate thing from whom all other secondary moving and transfixing things come. But we've lost it. Now, hear me out. We're going to talk about the fact that he, he's in process of restoring it to us. But, but our first parents and all of us ever since who've inherited their nature have rejected and turned from purposely the truth about God's glory We've denied his inherent value and instead we've put our worship, our primary hope, our primary, oh glory, 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 our primary value estimations into other things, created things. That's what idolatry is. We take the primary adoration, the primary hope, the primary awe of our hearts and we put it on the sun or birds, or without knowing it, on spiritual beings that are fallen, fallen angels that, that may be part of God's 
pantheons of gods in ancient times. Or in modern forms, we put our hope on things like money. Nothing wrong with having money in itself. We need it, but we put our hope in it. We adore it. We lust after it. We say it's what saves us. And we just glory in it. And if we don't have it, we grieve that we don't have it. We worry about it. Instead of the God who says, I'm the one who supplies you with money, with your needs. We put our hope in people's estimation of us. Whether they will accept us or reject us. That becomes our hope and it makes us sick or proud. We were made for him. And our first and our greatest sin was that we gave up that glory. Because it was easier and it, it allowed us to run ourselves our own way, run our own lives, and we turned from that glory and the value of God. And we said, oh, we're gonna, it's easier to put our value in other things, not have to be under his lordship, not have to honor him. I, I, I can't really describe the justification for idolatry as I think about it in this passage. I think sin is insane. And, and I'm a sinner. But I think it's a sick, insane thing because I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how, logic, how logical it got in that garden when the serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say these things? There was no justification in anything God had done for our first parents to turn from God. It was simply sin, evil came to be in their hearts. And, and the, the, the deeper predicament for us is that what Romans 1 tells us is that God does something. If he doesn't redeem us, he does something really dreadful. And it's not wrong, but it's very scary. Romans 1 tells us that when we make a choice to reject God, Romans 1 tells us that God honored that choice, so to speak, and he confirmed us in that rejection of him. In other words, God, when we rejected God, he hands us over to that choice and hands us over to our own chosen darkness. And this handing us over it, to our own chosen darkness, to our own rejection of him, it results in deeper and deeper levels of moving away from all the glory of, that's in God. And what's the glory that's in God? It's everything good. Compassion, kindness, grace, patience, sanity, wisdom. And, and we move farther and farther and farther away from that. And we become less and less like that because we were created, if you guys remember, in whose image? In the image of God. We were created to reflect that beautiful glory. But if God is the source of all good, right, as we said before, when you reject God, you don't get to keep goodness because that's what goodness is. It's him. It's all sourced in him. I said before, when you smash the only light in the room, you can't be surprised when everything turns dark around you, right? And so just as humanity was meant to savor and treasure the glory of God and his goodness and value him as 
he was supposed to be valued. When we reject that value, we start to unravel. Humanity starts to unravel. We start to unravel. We become less and less human. Personally, individually, we become less human. Relationally, we start to break down. Sexually, we start to become disordered. In our families, in our societies, we unravel. So the the reason why, for instance, we cheat and lie, the reason why husbands betray their wives with women willing to betray their own honor, the reason why things like racism exists and why arrogance and boasting politicians exist, the reason why fathers leave their kids to fatherlessness or why we put our deepest hope in money or militaries to save us, the reason why we claim the right to define reality for ourselves and reject God's <laughs> creative authority to say you're a man or a woman, the reason why we increasingly cannot listen to each other but would rather slam each other again and again on social media, the reason why the solution to international arguments for centuries has been to kill each other in mass in this thing called warfare, is because we have, at the start, rejected and treasuring who God is. We turn from goodness and hope to keep being good. We cut off the source of dignity and sanity, expecting and hoping to keep dignity and sanity. And it just doesn't work. We just unravel. And God, the dreadful news of Romans 1, before it gets to be great news, is that God in his justice, it's called his just wrath, he hands us over to the terrible unraveling we've chosen. And this is why Paul says we become covetous and malicious and slanderers and gossipers and arrogant, foolish, boasting and mockers, disobedient to parents, haters of God. It's because God is handing us over to our own sinful hearts. If we don't go to him, there's nowhere good to go. There's no good to end up in because he's what goodness is. This handing over, this judgment, it culminates in what Paul calls a final judgment called the day of wrath. When God says, enough is enough. I am cleaning house. And he calls all humanity to account. And his righteous judgment is revealed on the day of wrath. And he punishes all who have refused and rejected his glory with eternal condemnation and wrath. And it's a terrible story in Romans 1. But God's, by grace, has a very different desire and plan. Even in handing us over, he has been hoping that we would see our brokenness and turn to him. His goal is not to damn people, but to restore them to his glory, to recreate their appetite for his value, to give them eyes to see again his worth, to give them hearts that actually want him again because they can tell that he is He's worth savoring, that he's worth treasuring, that he's actually enjoyable, that he's actually delightful in the highest ways. That's his plan. And that as we recalibrate our taste buds back to him and our eyes are open to see his value again and our hearts begin to beat for him again, it changes us. And guess what we become? We, the Bible talks about this a lot, we become glorious. We become glorious. 
And you know what? Many of you in this room have seen it, right? You've seen it in one another. You, you meet with one another. You confess stuff to one another. You go to each other for help. You, and you just receive stuff from, from, from one another that's just beautiful because it's coming from this beautiful, new, glorious heart that's being made. It's not done, but it's being made. But this is what God is up to. He's up to restore people to being able to again see and love and treasure his glory, his worth, and then to transform them into that same glory so that not only do they see that he's glorious, but they themselves have beautiful worth and dignity perfected in them again. That's the rescue plan. That's where we're going. That's the hope of glory. That's where this verse, verse two ends. So here's the rescue plan. We're gonna to try to go through the rest faster now. Point two. Point two. Next slide, Ed. Mm. Justification. The foundation of this restoration plan is justification. In justification, this is the verse, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, part one of the restoration plan, God himself comes to mankind in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and in God the Son, God himself receives that judgment that we just talked about. He receives in himself that day of wrath. He receives in himself the, the price of that unraveling. God himself receives the judgment of God for our sins in the person of his Son. And to all who will acknowledge their sin and cry out to his, their Son for salvation, who put their faith in what Jesus has done, not in their ability to restore themselves or obey God or perform what they should have performed or be the good person they were meant to be. But they don't put their hope in any of that, but they, by faith, acknowledge that they are sinners who need Jesus Christ. To all who put their trust in what he has done, he says, you are forgiven. You are justified. He takes your record of rejection and rebellion and he tears it up and he justifies you. And what have we said, what have, what have we said that justification is? Colloquially speaking, we can say justification is just as if I had never sinned. Justification is just as if I had always obeyed. Another phrasing of this is that God in his holy courtroom declares over you, you are righteous in my sight. It doesn't mean that you're perfected yet. It doesn't mean that you're righteous in yourself inherently yet. No, it means that he has taken the record of your sin debt and he nailed it to the cross and he cast it aside forever. All your sins, past, present, and future. It means that the judge of the universe sees your debt as paid in full by the blood of his son and he no longer can or will judge you for your sins. He can't do it and honor his son. Do you see that? He, it's double jeopardy. He can't punish you and Jesus for the same sins. If they're on Jesus Christ, he can't honor his son by punishing you for them. So this is incredible grace. You receive the status of not guilty and righteous in his sight because for you, Jesus received the status of guilty for your sin. Because we have been forever justified by Christ's blood, he now is legally freed, so to speak, to be good to you forever and ever and ever and ever. This brings us to the first blessing that's secured by this justification, this foundation. It's number three, peace with God. 
the end of hostility forever. Peace with God, the end of hostility forever. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us the result of justification is peace with God. What is peace with God? It's not the peace of a calm, warm day when you, you, you finished your work day, you've got like three-day vacation or you're done with school. It's the first day of summer. Oh, that feels so peaceful, doesn't it? Remember those days when you were not old like me and you finished the term or the semester or the school year and it was just like, ah, I got nothing for three months. It's amazing. Oh, that's a peaceful feeling. It's not that. But listen, it will bring an endless supply of days like that. One day, it's gonna bring those days. It's not the peace of nations putting their weapons down, but it will one day bring an end to all warfare between nations. It's not the peace of family members turning from their shouting, unfortunately, but it will one day end all harsh words in the home. It's not the peace of a calm feeling or healed emotions. If you're traumatized and fraught with all kinds of a backlog of difficult experiences, and mental difficulties like me, it's not the healing of those emotions right now, but it will absolutely lead to an eternity of healed emotions. And God means for it to bring, at some point, the fruit of that healing to our hearts, even in this life, even it takes a long time. No, that's not the peace that Paul primarily means, but it's the source of all of those peace, pieces, No, this peace is an objective outside you peace in which God declares an end to his attitude of holy hostility towards you because of your sin. That's a scary thing to realize, but that's the way God and the Bible speak of people who have rejected him and are in a state of rejecting him. That there's enmity, there's strife, there's hostility between them and God. They don't want God and he has pronounced wrath over them. But the peace of Christ ends that hostility forever. In this peace, God ends his disposition of wrath and judgment. He says, no more will I turn away from you. I will only do good to you forever. Whether it feels good or bad is another point, but I'm only gonna do good to you forever. And I am forever gonna be for you because my son has taken away every reason for me to ever be against you again. Peace with God means he ends that righteous handing us over to our own sinful hearts. It means he he ends that unraveling. No more will he let you be consumed forever and ever by your sin and your perversion of the image you were supposed to bear. No, you're on a restoration project. He will have mercy on you. He gives you a new heart. He puts a new spirit in you that begins to fight against that corruption. Maybe little by little at first, but more and more and more, he puts in you grace. This peace begins the reversal of that unraveling of that human condition we talked about before. And there can be no turning back from that reversal. This is why Paul says, nothing, 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 nothing. It's in Romans 8, go through the whole list. Everything's in that list. (laughs) Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because God in his son has ended 
hostility with you. He has taken away every reason to turn back from being at peace with you. Jesus has won your peace with God. There's no other way to have peace with God but through his son. But through his son, he offers it to you as a free gift if you will believe him for it. And the eternal end of this peace is that you savor and taste who he is and you love him more than anything and you look like him more than anything. And this is where peace is going to take us. Point four, grace, our new reality. This is how we get to that end destination. We have a new reality we live in now. Verse two, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Through him, that's through Jesus. That's what I just said, only through Jesus, by his blood, we have obtained, we now possess it. It's ours. We're not waiting for it. We're not hoping for it. It's a certainty. We have obtained, we possess, by virtue of what Christ has done for us, this thing called access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That is a long, ponderous sentence Paul never apologizes for that. Listen to that. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I'm convinced that Paul wrote this and wrote a lot of his, his sentences and he, he laughed after he wrote them down. And he's like, I bet you, Lord, that for 2,000 years, pastors are gonna try to unpack this stuff. I bet you that I've written a sentence that a pastor won't be able to get out of for three sermons. I don't know that he did that, but I, I look at that stuff. I'm like, why is it like this? And I'm like, you know, Paul is just setting up the church for preaching <laughs> and teaching and people having to really work because the truth is though, when you dig into it, it actually makes sense. He's talking about something real. So let's see if we can get a handle on what Paul's saying here. What does it mean to say access by faith into this grace in which we now stand? Well, that word access in the Greek would sometimes mean being ushered into the presence of royalty brought into the palace of the king. So that sounds good, right? But there's more here than mere being ushered in. This isn't just some one-time meeting. It's not a place we visit. Paul says this place called grace is a place in which we stand. We stand here now. We stand here now. Whoever belongs to Christ Jesus is standing in grace now. We're not just ushered in and ushered out. No, we're ushered in to stand in it. We're not moving from it or leaving from it. It's where we live now. It's our new reality. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, if you belong to Jesus, you stand in grace. The realm of grace is your new reality. You live in grace more than you live in Frederick or you live in Maryland or you live in the United States. More than that, you live in grace. It's a new realm, a new kingdom you've been brought into. Grace means God's unearned, undeserved, lavish, unending favor, support, kindness, goodness, love, mercy, strength, help, sovereign protection, poured on you, protecting you, securing you, sustaining you. But the point is, because of the blood of Christ and the peace he secured for you, this is all God will ever do for you and to you through even the suffering 
which Paul will talk about a lot in the next few passages that you have to go through. He will make it grace. He will make it to bow down to goodness in your life, kindness in your life, love and mercy and help. Day after day, year after year, century after century, millennium after millennium, age after age, God is going to be gracious to you. This grace has lots of concrete expressions in scripture. It's not just a vague abstraction. In Romans 8, this grace is the Holy Spirit coming into your heart at salvation and giving you new affections and new desires so that you begin to want what God wants for you and you begin to find power to follow him. Not just commandments to do and do and do, but actual power to be able to do. In that same chapter, grace is the spirit testifying into our innermost being. And by the way, for those of you who struggle with assurance sometimes like I do and doubts like I can do sometimes, when Paul says the innermost, this Holy Spirit testifies for our spirit, I can talk to you about this in another, another time. I don't believe he's talking about the spirit speaking to our minds where we're conscious. That's a place of ongoing warfare and difficulty. But in a deeper place, your spirit, which I believe is deeper than the conscious mind, and the very core of who you are that you don't always hear. That's why, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says that when you speak in tongues, your spirit prays, but your mind is unfruitful. Your mind doesn't know what's going on, but your spirit thanks God and praises him. So there's something way, way, way down deep in you, beneath the mind. It's the spirit. It's the core of who you are. It's what I believe was made new. Your mind's being made new, but your spirit was made new. And in that place, the Holy Spirit says, you're my son. You're my daughter. We don't always feel that way. We doubt it. We struggle with it. But because he said it into our very spirits, we can't let it go. We can't give up on him. Because way, way, way deep, 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 deep down, we know something down there is different and changed. In Hebrews 12, this grace is the discipline of a father who delights in you and will bring unpleasant chastisement into your life to keep you from living in unholiness or being seduced and destroyed by the world. In Hebrews 4, the grace is receiving Jesus as a high priest who has compassion and sympathy for all your weaknesses and temptations and tells you boldly come before my father now for all the help that you need in every need. In 1 Corinthians 10, the grace is the compassion of God who knows when a temptation has become too much for you and promises to provide a way out so you can escape it if you will trust him too. In 1 John 1, 2, this grace is the blood of Christ that even when we continue to sin and fail, he stands continually as our atoning sacrifice before the Father. And a renewed sense of pardon and cleansing is ours for the confession of it. In 2 Corinthians 1, this grace is the tender comfort of a God who knows that we get throttled by life and sends us other believers who've been throttled but who've been comforted by him so they can comfort us. These are just a few, a few of the most important aspects 
of the grace that we receive. We could speak of a lot of others. Jesus is our husband redeemer. The gifts the Holy Spirit's given to each of us. The family that we're brought into. The point is, we have been brought into the realm of grace and God is never going to kick us out of that realm. He is going to see that his grace completes the work it has started in us. Which brings me to my final point. What is that work? The work is what we started with. The glory of God. Paul calls it, the next, next slide, the glory of God. Next slide, it's coming. I know it's coming. You got it, Ed? That sounds patronizing, I'm sorry. Do, is it not up there? Okay, the glory of God, our sure, sure hope. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you guys see how this is kind of a choo-choo train? Like it started somewhere and it's going somewhere. It's gonna end somewhere. This is where it's gonna end. Christ dies for you. He makes peace with you, with God. And then he starts to shower grace over your life forever so you can get to some place. This is the place you're gonna get to. The glory of God, our sure hope. We're being brought back to seeing God perfectly Grace is going to restore us to a state of valuing him and loving him and enjoying him and worshiping him the way he deserves to be worshiped and valued and seen and the way that he wants to bless you with the sight of him. Grace is going to take us back to reflecting that glory of God that we were meant to so that we are beautiful and glorious. That corruption that we have done to ourselves that corruption which God has given us over to, it is being undone. Little by little, trial by trial, suffering by suffering, insight by insight, comfort by comfort, prayer by prayer, growth by growth, that corruption is being undone. And grace is taking us back and giving us the greatest thing God could give us, himself being able to taste and savor and feel the glory of God. Being able to feel and embrace and treasure the I am that I am. Being able to take in all that weight of who he is and not be destroyed by it, but be thrilled by it. Be strengthened by it. Oh, we were made to see great movies, weren't we? We were made to ride wonderful roller coasters. We were made to taste delicious food. We were made to hear songs that make us cry. We were made to read poems that speak to some invisible place we didn't even know we were there, was there. We were made to feel really known by somebody in all our ugliness and still loved. We were made to be thrilled by somebody's sense of humor and enjoy that. Listen, all that stuff. All that stuff is just the tiniest hint. All those good tastes and tears and laughter and feeling known and accepted. It's the tiniest, tiniest hint of what you were made for. Those are little gifts God's giving you and saying, listen, you're made for something wonderful. You're made to enjoy me, to experience me in the fullness of who I am.
those angels, the seraphim and cherubim in, in Isaiah 6, when they're all covering their eyes and they're covering their feet and they're in God's throne, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, I've honestly thought, like, was that boring? Do they do that all the time? They just, they have, they can fly anywhere. They're just in there. They, they don't look at them. They cover their feet because of his, his holiness. And they're just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. I bet you there's nothing that I have experienced that compares to the thrill that they were experiencing. And the holy joy they were experiencing. And the sense of shalom, of wholeness, of being all they were meant to be, and feeling so good about that. Of the purity of, of valuing what is most valuable, just as it deserves to be valued. We're gonna do more than sing and flap wings if we get wings, I don't know. But my point is like, we are made for glory. We're made for God's glory. He is going to give it to us. Nothing else compares to it.